Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. I'm an assistant professor of pastoral ministry at Spurgeon College and author in residence at Midwestern Seminary. Pop culture is absolutely infatuated with the other side, but why? Year after year, Hollywood churns out countless films and TV shows that explore demons, evil, and the occult, showing how dark forces can upend the lives of unsuspecting characters. Tinseltown's endless fascination with this topic is understandable considering the age-old struggle against evil that has persisted throughout the millennia. But are claims of possession, exorcism, and evil real? And if so, what can we know about them? In his new book, Playing with Fire, a modern investigation into demons, exorcisms, and ghosts, Billy Hallowell delves into the strange phenomena of supernatural activity, exploring shocking stories and claims through the lens of the Christian faith. He speaks with pastors, theologians, and experts to answer important questions and to clear up misconceptions. And I'm grateful to have Billy Hallowell on the podcast with me today. He's been working in journalism and media for more than two decades. His writings, interviews, and social commentary have appeared in Deseret News, Fox News, among other outlets. And he has served as the faith and culture editor of The Blaze, senior editor of Faithwire, and has written four books. Brother, thanks so much for coming on the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, so I'm just going to start out by asking, like, this book feels a little out there, man. I'll be honest with you. The investigation <laughs> of exorcisms and the occult. Yeah. And I got to ask you, what, yeah. what prompted you to pursue this line of investigation? Well, you know, it's like one of those things where you have to just conclude that God wanted you to do it. Because if you had told me a year and a half ago, <laughs> you're going to write a book about demons and exorcism, I would have probably laughed at you. Because I, I have covered over the years, you know, working at The Blaze and working at Faithwire, um, I would encounter stories. And, and most of these stories had made their way into the mainstream in some way. Um, when The Conjuring came out, the film, you know, there were yeah. there were stories about that. And so we would cover them. And as a Christian my whole life, you know, these are stories in the Bible that obviously I'm familiar with, but I think like most Christians, you kind of read through it. You don't think a lot about it because it's kind of strange and you don't really understand it maybe fully and you move forward. But this topic has almost, you know, haunted me, pun intended, over the years. <laughs> it just, it kept, it kept coming back. And I had a book um, offer a couple of years ago to write the very, very similar book. And I prayed about it and I just didn't feel right about it. Mm. You know, I like to take on difficult topics as as a journalist and, and sort of look at them and, and do it in a way that doesn't tell people what to think, but that that sheds a light on maybe something that people are interested in, but they're afraid to ask about. And so you know, I've written on the end times. That was my first book. It was called Armageddon Code. And that was another one that a lot of people were like, why are you doing this? And <laughs> in, the, in, in this particular case, um, I really, I have to be honest, I sat on the book contract for two months because I was a scared to write it, um, because yeah. and, which is funny because now I, I now I sort of look at it and I'm like, you know, I know Christians have authority over these things. We don't need to be afraid, but I didn't know enough and I was afraid to write it. And B, I thought, you know, am I going to be the weird book guy? Is this what I don't want to <laughs> be the weird book guy? And um, anyway, so I could go on and on, but but I would tell you a lot of prayer and really it was one of the most peaceful experiences and brought me a lot closer to my faith in the end, which is really interesting. Yeah, well, so just from the evangelical perspective, I think we tend to think of these subjects in in kind of a um, two 
pendulum swing ways, right? So on one level, we think, man, like demonology, Satanism, occult, that's for the like new age, uh, you know, witchcraft, that's, that's satanic. But then when you start to, you know, thinking about exorcisms and possession and that sort of thing, you think, well, that's, that's more of the, you know, Roman Catholic specialized, you know, mm-hmm. the, you know, the major emphases on that ongoing, if we want to call it a ministry, uh, tends to be in, in Roman Catholic circles. And so for the evangelical, it's sort of like, well, gosh, I don't feel at home in either one of those worlds. And so we just kind of avoid the subject altogether. All what should the evangelical perspective be? Um, you know, and you don't have to run down the whole thesis of the book, but what should the evangelical sure. position be or perspective be just on on the subject itself? So I would actually say that I can't think of another topic, and I want you to challenge me if you disagree, because <laughs> okay. you, may, you may have a different thought, but I can't think of another topic that is spoken about so frequently in the New Testament and that is talked about so infrequently in churches today. And that mm. is another one of the reasons why I wrote the book, because I wanted to open up a conversation. I mean, you look at the fact, what you just said is so true. There are people who experience, and possession, by the way, is a very rare thing, right? For those who understand it, it's not something that's happening to everybody. Spiritual warfare is not a rare thing. Um, and oppression is not a rare thing. But but full possession, which I do talk a lot about in the book, is is a rare thing. But when people experience these issues, they're not sure where to go many times in evangelical circles because we don't talk about it in a lot of churches. Now, some do. Uh, and I think you have this awkward balance between not looking for a demon under every rock and at the same time recognizing that this is something that is real and that Jesus spent a substantial amount of his recorded ministry dealing with. And so yeah. that's convicting to me. And I will tell you, we commissioned a poll through Thomas Nelson and through HarperCollins, and we asked church leaders, and these weren't just pastors, these were people who, you know, work in, in ministry in different ways in churches, you know, do you think demons exist? The vast majority said yes. Do you think demons can impact culture? Evil can impact culture? The vast majority said yes. And then you ask this question, are pastors and churches doing enough to address it? And the vast majority said no. And some of these people were pastors, and there, it turned out there were about 17% of these church leaders who said that their churches had a deliverance ministry. Now, that is a very specific term, and we can get into all of that, but, sure. but it was interesting to see everybody thinks this is a problem, and they believe that it's real, but yet everyone's admitting that it's not something that's being talked about. And that, to me, is a problem, um, but, but I would also add, and then I will, and I'll stop my TED Talk here on this topic, but, <laughs> but I will also add that when Hollywood is talking about a topic more than the churches and it's a church topic, that is also a problem. And of course, they're not talking about it the right way or the theological way in most cases, but it is a prime topic every October in Hollywood. Almost every movie that's coming out is dealing with this in some way, and yet we're very silent about it. So I think these are things we need We need to find the balance in how to discuss it. Yeah, you know... Um in a similar way, uh, I, I'm seeing the same thing kind of in the in the zeitgeist, right? The last two books that I uh, published had to do with the supernaturality, uh, including the last book, which was about Satan and, and the lies of Satan. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm seeing what what you're seeing as well is this increase um, in supernatural interest, right? Um, you know, spirituality even in 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 the culture. Uh, certainly becoming you know less religious, and I think that can be, um, I don't know, distracting or or deceiving for evangelicals to think, oh, the world's becoming less religious. Well, in a way, it is, but it's it's not becoming any less spiritual. 
And if we're not beginning to address some of these spiritualities with the truths of the scriptures, we're you know we're going to be on our heels quite a bit. And I think what you said about the um, you know the pen, you know the way we tend to go one way or the other, a demon under every rock, and uh, reminds me of Lewis in the beginning of uh, of Screw Tape Letters talking about the the equal and opposite errors, right? That we would be you know overly fixated on 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 the devil and the schemes of the devil. Or just denying that they even exist, right? You know yeah. that we have a complete yeah. disinterest in in it. But what you do in this book is is pretty unique, I think. Um, it's investigative journalism, isn't it? I mean, it's a kind of work like that. It is. It, it is, and and that's the thing. So when people sort of come at me and they say, "Why would you do that? Why would you ever write about this weird topic?" <laughs> it's like, well, listen. I mean, the reality is, and and the first real experience that I had covering this, you go back to. 2014. And I had done a few stories before that, but Gary, Indiana, the case that happened there, it was on the cover of the Indianapolis star. I mean, it was, maybe it wasn't on the cover, but it was in the Indianapolis star. It was a major story, a big newspaper write-up because there was so much evidence of this possession case that it, it garnered a ton of interest. And so I talk a lot about that case in the book. Um, there, there are cases that are actually piquing the interest of non-believers as well, because there's evidence and it's interesting and people want to understand it. And so when we when we talk about investigative journalism and we talk about this need to pull facts together, you can go, you can pick up Playing With Fire, you can read it and you could say, I don't believe these people's stories. I think they're lying. And that's your right to believe that. Uh, but what I tried to do in the book was sort of wed together these people's stories, these interesting stories that people have claimed to have gone through with what scripture says. So at the end of the day, even if you don't believe those stories, understanding each time Jesus, you know, delivers somebody of a demon, what was going on there? And there were so many interesting things. And I'm sure you've experienced this, obviously, knowing the Bible as well as you do and teaching and going through scripture, that you notice things that you never noticed before. And that kept happening for me as I was writing this. <laughs> um, and so I tried to bring some of that out because I think, you know, we don't, we, we shouldn't approach scripture as, as journalists per se, but I think it's helpful when you're looking for details and you start to notice these patterns. Um, like for instance, we're never told in scripture how somebody became possessed. We're not given in the New Testament. We're not, we, we meet them where they are on their journey. We're not really being told for most of the cases how these people ended up in, in the position that they're in. And so that poses some interesting questions. But to give people what the Bible says, to understand culturally what is going on, and to even look a little bit at Hollywood to see, well, what's the pattern in Hollywood? How are they covering this? What are they looking at? And so that's a quick overview, but, but, and then by the way, to look at culture, because to what you just said, if people aren't talking about something, if people in the church are not addressing something that they actually believe has an impact on culture, that's troubling, right? Yeah. You have something that could actually be impacting us and we're not discussing it. So anyway. Yeah. It can be almost <laughs> like a, a ministerial dereliction of duty or, or some kind of, you know, mm -hmm. cultural tone deafness. Okay. Um, did you have a hard time... <laughs> finding credible sources for some of these stories? You mentioned, you know, this is on the front page of the newspaper and that kind of thing. I, I mean, how did you know, like, okay, these are people worth talking to and maybe these people yeah. aren't? I mean, how did you weigh that? So what, I'm kind of a, a natural sort. I'm not going to use the word skeptic because I'm a believer, but when I hear a story, I need to know, okay, is there a credible sane person who is making this claim, right? Is this right. like, or is this, I could make up anything, right? And and we live in an era where truth is really hard to discern. It's like everybody's saying things and you're having a hard time trying to, I think everyone's experiencing this right now, trying to figure out, well, like what actually happened? Um, 
So for me, I went back to a couple of the stories that I had encountered during my time at The Blaze. And the thing that always strikes me as fascinating is when somebody is hesitant to share their story, okay? Now, that doesn't mean they're telling the truth, but there's something about a hesitancy to share that often yields um, an an unauthentic experience in some way, or at least the belief that the experience that that person had in their own life is authentic. And so that's always a criteria for me. Uh, When people are really anxious to share their stories, sometimes it's because they're trying to help people, but you have to try to discern that. So I went back to two stories in particular. One was the Gary Indiana story. And I didn't want to talk to the woman who made the claim because all of her quotes are on the record. So I didn't need to do that. But I wanted to talk to people who investigated it. So former police officers, the former sheriff um, who was actually called to investigate the home. What did he see? I had never talked to him. The priest who dealt with the case, what did he experience? So I went for people like that who had been highly respected people or currently are in positions of authority who had been well-known in their community and were not known to be liars in any way, right? And talk to them individually to try to understand their perspectives on what happened. And another story, which I tell in the book, Bob Cranmer out in Pennsylvania, he had a he had something called an infestation, he believed, in his house where there were demons in his home. He was having all sorts of things happen. At the time when I was covering his story at The Blaze, which again, I talk about in Playing With Fire, I kept thinking, I'm going to catch this guy in a lie. I'm going to call the diocese. <laughs> I'm going to call all these people who investigated his case and someone's going to tell me, eh, that didn't happen. And what was so remarkable was that in both of those cases, every single thing that people told me backed up the claims of the people or the persons involved. And that, again, is it possible that things are an elaborate lie? Sure, but it becomes very unlikely. So to answer your question, um, in some cases, it can be difficult. I did not find it difficult in these particular cases. And I found some of the stories actually, and, and I will tell you, there are people who would not talk to me who had amazing stories because they are afraid to speak out. Um, and, and I think, again, that speaks to something about their experience that I, I've tended to find to be authentic. Wow. Okay. Um, talk to me about possession. What was the, the manner of, of the uh, exorcism stories that, that you encountered? Yeah. One of the things about exorcism and, and really this topic in general is, and it goes back to what you were saying before, you know, the Catholic church has a very specific way of doing it. Right. And it affects how it's handled. Whereas some Protestant ministers have a very different way of doing it. And I tried to break down in the book, the different language. And before I answer your question, I bring this up because I think it's important. Like exorcism means something different (laughs) to different people. Deliverance means something different. Uh, then there's infestation and oppression. So there's all these different terms. But but when it comes to full possession and exorcism, this idea that somebody's entire being has been taken over by a, a, an evil entity, right? A, a demon yeah. or more than one demon. It really manifests itself in much of what we see in scripture. And, and again, you go back to these stories and I don't know, like, was I sleeping through these Bible lessons when I'm reading? Am I not? Because <laughs> I'm going back and I'm, I was isolating out all the places in the Bible where evil is discussed and talked about. And I had never done that before, obviously. And it became so interesting. I mean, the little boy who um, is possessed, his father's going to Jesus and he's talking about um, saying that the demons are essentially trying to kill the child, throwing him into the fire, throwing yeah. him into water. Um, and and this lines up with much of what we see. So in the Indiana case, you had a situation, and I'm going to say this, and I'm going to sound like the crazy book person, but I'm just going to say it. I, I've shared it in interviews. And every time I share it, I laugh because it's such a ridiculous detail. But the thing about the Indiana case that caught everybody's eye was the fact that this mother, so it was a mom, her mother, 
and then and then a number of kids in the family living in this house. And they claimed they were experiencing possession. And long story short, when they went to get help, because the kids were acting erratically, the mother was acting erratically, the assumption on behalf of medical professionals and the police was that there was some sort of abuse going on, right? That this couldn't be what she's saying it is. It's got to be something else. So they get to a hospital at one point in this story. And I go into great detail in the book with document documentation, which I think is fascinating. They're in the hospital and a CPS child services worker is in the room with them and they're interviewing the family. And this is written down in official government documentation. And again, I'm probably going to laugh saying it because it sounds insane. The claim that was written by this government official was that the, the child, one of the little boys, walked up the side of the wall and did sort of like a somersault and landed on his feet. Okay. So now I know it's ridiculous. Now a nurse is also in this room and it backs up this entire story. They file this in official paperwork and they're describing in this paperwork, which you can pull up and read. I, I talk about it in the book. I provide excerpts of it that they run out of the room. Naturally, they go to get a doctor. The doctor comes in, doesn't believe their story because it sounds ridiculous. And this particular caseworker who handled this case left her job after and moved out of state, okay? Um, because wow. this case, and, and there's an interview later on where she actually tells the Indianapolis Star that this, it took a very long time for her to get over this case. And so, again, strange detail, um, but I don't think we've, we see people walking up walls very often. Is it possible they're all lying? Sure, but I don't know what her benefit is of lying. She's left her job. She doesn't live in the state anymore. And you have other people backing up that this happened as well who are in that room. So these are there are lots of strange details in the possession cases. Um, do you want me to give you another one? Because there's another very interesting one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, tell us. Okay, so this, this woman, Amy Stamatis, um, her story was fascinating. I encountered it um, last October while I was writing the book. I was searching on Google and something told me, look and see if there have been any other stories in media. And I laughed to myself thinking nobody's covering any more possession stories. Uh, and sure enough, two weeks before I was doing that search, this woman's story was told by a local affiliate in Arkansas. And in her case, she had been a completely normal person, no issues, has had a family, working nurse in a hospital. One day she's working at the hospital, doesn't feel well, and goes home to go for a jog, can't run in, in a straight line, just something's off. She goes and tells her husband, I feel like I am losing my mind. I feel like I'm having a breakdown. Within eight days, Amy is admitted to a mental institution. She's no longer working. Her entire life has been turned upside down and doctors cannot figure out what is wrong with her. So over this eight-month period, erratic behavior, all of this insanity is going on. And the assumption is that something might be mentally or physically wrong, but they cannot figure out what it is. She's gone to every doctor imaginable. Now, Amy is sitting up on the second floor of her house in a windowsill. And she had never had a suicidal thought before this. But during that eight months, this voice in her head, end your life, end your life. You, you know, get rid of yourself, kill yourself. And she was a nurse. So she would think about ways she could do that. She became sort of consumed with how she could end her life. She's sitting on this windowsill and picture that she's facing into her house. So the open window is behind her and she doesn't jump out of the window. She just intentionally drops herself out of the window. Hmm. And I won't get into every detail of her story, but she almost dies and is to this day paralyzed from the waist down because of this incident. And after somebody heard her story at her church, they came and performed a deliverance, prayed over her. And after overcoming, getting out of the hospital, she has never had another 
mental health problem again. She has never had any other sort of symptom. And, and I want to be careful to say I'm not saying that every mental health problem is a possession problem or or a demon. But what I'm saying that is that in this case, she believes she was dealing with a possession. Yeah. So there's lots of stories like that. Well, I want to ask you about that. How might we discern the difference? Um, I mean, I remember sitting in, you know, religion classes in college where, um, you know, the teacher took the, you know, accounts in the Gospels as historic, meaning that this incident happened, but was saying that it's been, it's been misinterpreted. It's not a demonic possession. This is clearly schizophrenia or, or something like that. Um, how, how do we discern the difference between demonic possession and things like addictions and, and mental illness and diseases and things like that? Yeah, I think that's so important, too, because a lot of people believe that. They believe that this is just ancient people, you know, uh, documenting things that they didn't understand at the time, which would discount a lot of Jesus's ministry and it would discount a lot of the Bible if we if we take that route. Right. right. It's, it's I think it's very slippery, a very slippery slope. But but I actually interview in Playing With Fire a number of mental health professionals because that was very important to me going into this, that we actually have a real conversation. There are many Christians out there who will say, any health issue you have, not just mental, but physical, is a result of sin and is a result of, you know, in, in the case of mental elements, you know, demonic possession or oppression of some of some sort. And so my thing is, I'm not a doctor, but if anybody is experiencing something that they believe to be spiritual in nature, that consulting a pastor and going to a, a Christian counselor, going to a counselor, is going to be a very beneficial thing. And letting professionals deal with that, one of the interesting things that came up in many of these interviews with these experts is that there are many times that it's just a mental health element that you're dealing with, but that, you know, evil you know, these entities and Satan loves to seize on our, on our weak points. And so when we're struggling with something, it could be compounded by spiritual issues. Right. Um, and that makes sense to me, right? When you're struggling with an issue in your life, any issue, it could very easily be used against you in some way. And then there are people who are just dealing with mental health issues. And so you need a professional to diagnose that. And I, and I talk about some stories in the book that are very sad, um, but where certain cultures or people, um, really didn't know what they were dealing with, and they would assume that things were possession that weren't, you know, and yeah. that and that's a very dangerous that's a very dangerous thing. At the same time, and this is where I think we've we are right now in culture. There may be things that are spiritual that we are assuming can be solved with physical means, right? And so having those professionals deal with it and help you process through it, uh, I think is key. I, I really do. And and I can't answer what I think is or isn't, but what's interesting some of the deliverance ministers I talked with because they deal with this a lot, um, they spend a lot of time, anybody who's worth their salt in this arena, whether it's the Catholic church dealing with, you know, exorcism or whether it's in the Protestant world, they are spending time trying to differentiate before they do anything else. Is this mental illness? Is it not? And, and that effort, if that's not happening, it's a problem because you want to be sure to understand that. And this may sound oversimplified, but um, one of the people I interviewed for the book said, listen, you know, you can tell very quickly if it's if it's a spiritual issue, it responds to your attempts to correct it. If it's mm. not a spiritual issue, the person is not responding to your attempts to correct it. Um, and I think that's I think that's an interesting, you know, quick way of sort of summarizing how you do differentiate. Yeah. Do you think the average pastor feels equipped to teach on these issues? You know, I it's so hard to make generalizations. I would say. I would say no. I mean, I the fact that that 
I mean, deliverance ministry, again, is a very specific thing in the Protestant world, right? It's, it's, you know, basically it's a form of, I know there are some Christians who will say, well, listen, you know, even Christians need to go through deliverance because you could be oppressed, you could be dealing with, and there are, are all different ideas about that. But I think the fact that there's so much silence on it at the least shows that there's an uncomfortability with talking about it, that there's a a lot of people would like to avoid it because it's not a feel good thing, right? It's it's a tough topic. You're dealing with something that feels weird. Uh, the world already thinks Christians have weird beliefs, right? So, you know, I think a lot of people are trying to avoid going going into that. My hope is that most most pastors can because it's such a major part of the New Testament. Uh, but but my inclination is that many have chosen to not talk about it for so long that people need a refresh. You know, we, I think we need to we need to have a conversation about it. I'm not saying we all need to agree. I think there's so many areas of disagreement that we don't understand on this. Yeah. But but to talk about it and have that conversation and open up those floodgates, which is why I wrote Playing With Fire. Yeah, I think one of the, you know, cautions that we would have for pastors is is not to be embarrassed about the supernaturality of of the scriptures, of of the faith, right? I mean, what we are uh, living in what we're experiencing, what we're enjoying by um, the good news of Jesus, and and uh, by virtue of that uh, union with Christ, it isn't run of the mill ordinary. Thing. I mean, this is a supernatural thing. We are mystically united to heaven. Therefore, we, we shouldn't um, rule out the this possibility of of spiritual activity, especially given what you just said, what the Bible teaches about it. You know, the warnings and in First Peter five, even to pastors directly, uh, that the devil is is seeking them out, right, to keep on guard against against the devil. So we have so much biblical evidence um, to at least be alert and to and and to train ourselves to be discerning um, about these things, don't we? Well, we do, and and the thing is, if we're not talking about it, right. right? we're actually putting people at risk of not understanding Ephesians 6. And Ephesians 6 took on a totally new meaning for me as I was going through and writing this book because you, know, you talk about taking up the shield of faith and the armor of God. and But the biggest piece, you know, it's not a battle between flesh and blood and over flesh and blood. We're sitting here fighting these battles this year, this this crazy, the last, I would say, two years probably, um, and maybe even beyond, people fighting people over all sorts of different issues, politics. We assume the other side is the evil, is evil, they're the enemy. And yet the Bible's telling us that there is a battle going on that you are not seeing, and it is between good and evil. And so when we deprive people of understanding that, I think we deprive people of protecting themselves, of realizing how important it is to not just go through the motions of being a Christian, but to actually be one, to actually, you know, <laughs> yeah. read scripture every day, be in prayer. I mean, that's what it's talking about in Ephesians 6. But, you know, so when I look at this, to me, understanding evil, and this is why I think it's so important, actually points you right back to good. I've had people I reached out to who were friends, who were influencers, and I was asking for their help spreading the word. And so many people were amazing and helped. Even people, I will tell you, I had actor friends in Hollywood who openly helped promote this book. And I had pastors who would not. <laughs> and that was so interesting to me again. And I would imagine it's because people who are working in Hollywood as Christians, they are dealing with heavy duty spiritual warfare. Many of them, they know that this is real if they're true Christians and they're trying to live in a tough industry. Um, but I think, I, I just think that it helps us under, I don't think I know it helps us understand our need for grace and our need for Jesus when we understand what evil looks like. And so there's a healthy balance there, and we got to strike it. Yeah, and and we know, you know, Ephesians six is is so helpful because 
each piece of the of that armor, um, I, I think some people may miss this, is, is something only God um, has done or can provide. It's not, you know, the breastplate of your wherewithal and the, you know, the shield of of your strength or or anything like that. It's it's his righteousness and his peace and his his truth, um, you know, things that he has given us, um, which again just kind of points to how apart from the gospel, we will not be equipped to respond to um, to any kind of demonic activity, to any kind of spiritual warfare. Um, but it's it's you know the news is good, isn't it? The news is good. It is, and I, and I think you know. I, so I one of the things I was going to say, I had some people who were also pastors or people in Hollywood, particularly people in Hollywood who who are like, oh, this just isn't my thing. You know, I'm <laughs> yeah. They don't they don't want to put their name on it, and I get it. Like, listen, I I get it. It's a tough. You've written books on on this topic. I've written a book on it now, and. And I think it's a hard thing to talk about, but but it is an important thing to talk about. We are watching culture right now, and we are watching confusion across the board. We all of the elements of Satan, and this is something that also st- really stuck out to me. You know, being a liar, a deceiver, really trying to kill people. I mean, lead people to their deaths. You look at what is happening in our culture, and so many of those attributes of Satan throughout Scripture are actually playing out in what is happening in culture right now, and. It just, it's a convicting reminder. Now, am I saying that everything happening is Satan orchestrating? No, some of us just make bad decisions sometimes. <laughs> we have free will and we make we make bad decisions. But but the influence and in what is happening in Hollywood and media and universities and the things that are going on, um, they very well line up with what we are told about deceit and the character of Satan. And so, again, understanding that gives you a clear sense, I think, and also grounds us as Christians to know we need Jesus. Like, and and we need to be protected, and it's so easy to be protected. Now, I was afraid to write that book. Why am I afraid to write the book? We've got authority over this. We don't need to be mm. afraid of this, but we need to understand it, and we need to be, I think we need to be able to illustrate it and talk about it with other people, and I will tell you, I have had atheists and others and skeptics who have said, I'm going to read this book because I'm really interested in it, and that's fascinating to me. That's great. Well, hopefully it opens some doors to consideration of the good news. We've been speaking with Billy Hallowell, author of the new book, Playing With Fire. It's published by Thomas Nelson. You can pick it up wherever good books are sold. Billy, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, brother. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. As always, listener, if you like the podcast, please share us with your friends. Give us a good review on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. Every little bit helps. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast hosted by Jared Wilson, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.